Good morning. It's so good to be with you, to sing together, to pray together, to hear God's word this morning. Uh, I hope that you had a good week. I, you know, in this room, there are likely people who had uh, wonderful, encouraging weeks, but also disheartening and exhausting weeks. And it's just a beautiful thing to see the Lord's people come together and set those things aside and give praise and worship to God. But I hope that your week wasn't stressful because of a particular deadline that happened to be on Tuesday this past week. Uh, yes, I am referring to tax day, which is normally on April 15th. Wouldn't have looked this up if uh, this wasn't the case. But that would have put it on a Saturday of last week. And because it was a Saturday, they wanted to push it to a weekday. So they tried to push it to Monday. But as it turns out, uh, the District of Columbia was celebrating their Emancipation Proclamation Day. They were observing it on Monday, and so they pushed it to Tuesday. So there was a nice three-day extension for those who were scrambling to meet uh, the deadline. But it's just interesting because that placed tax day the week before we cover a passage in our scripture in which Jesus talks about paying taxes, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. The Pharisees asked Jesus in our text if it is lawful or not to pay taxes to Caesar. Uh, well, there's a few differences between our taxation system and theirs, but I think you'll find Jesus' answer uh, edifying and hopefully relevant for our lives today. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Mark 12. Verse 13, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15, through 17 this morning, just five verses. And if you're using the Black Bibles underneath the chairs, this can be found on page 848. 848. Just for a little bit of context, we're currently in the middle of a series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Now, pressure has been rising, and Jesus is ministry as he's gone around teaching authoritatively. He's entered the capital city, Jerusalem, uh, which is basically like the headquarters for the religious authorities. Uh, and he has done some pretty shocking things so far. He rode in towards the city like a king, uh, while others called him the son of David, uh, or that he would bring the kingdom of David back. That would have been a direct challenge to the religious authorities. Not only that, though, he went into the temple and overturned tables and basically told them that they had made the house of God a den of robbers. That would have been a direct attack against the religious authorities. Not only that, but he told a parable of judgment against them that basically said that they would reject Jesus and that through Jesus' rejection, God would bring salvation to the Gentiles. It, it, these are amazing passages. I encourage you to read them if you uh, missed the last few weeks here at church. But now we come back to another conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Only this time they're not alone. This time they bring a few friends with them. I'll get to that later. But the reinforcements don't help them in their combat with Jesus. Let's read our text together now and then we'll dive into the meaning behind these events. Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him, that is Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true 
and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. It's a very famous passage and has often been used to help Christians think about how to live under the rule of a, of a secular or non-religious government. And that's not really the main issue at hand, believe it or not. The main thing this text is about is worship and obedience to God. And in order to demonstrate that, I'm going to have us look at the question asked, the answer given, and then after that I'm just going to give you four takeaways from this passage. So first, the question. Is it lawful? pay taxes. Uh, this question has been asked a few times in the book, is it lawful? Uh, typically what's meant when that question is asked is whether or not something is permitted according to divine law or the law revealed in the Old Testament or the traditions of the religious authorities. So you might remember, this was months ago now, back in chapter 3, the Pharisees asked Jesus why his disciples were doing what was unlawful on the Sabbath by picking grain to eat. In chapter 7, when the disciples don't wash their hands according to the, their traditions, they also ask a similar question. They see their traditions as part of what it means to obey God and to obey the law. And so this is really what the Pharisees are all about. They're all about outwardly observing law and tradition as an example of their own righteousness, or at least what they believe to be righteous living. Of course, Jesus has already pointed out their hypocrisy at multiple times. He said that what is inside them defiles them. But Jesus, especially as a rabbi, and certainly one claiming to be the Messiah, stirring up the waters in Jerusalem, he's one that would expect to understand and obey the law perfectly. He's one that the Pharisees probably should expect to know the answer to questions like these. Inevitably, there are areas of uncertainty, and one of them during this, this day and age of Jesus and the Pharisees was paying taxes to Caesar. Uh, and here's why. That question is a little bit of a loaded question. And that's why the Pharisees choose it to stump Jesus. The reason it's loaded is because the Jews absolutely abhorred Roman taxes. Not only because tax collectors were just weasels by trade, uh, totally corrupt, but because it was a regular reminder that the Jews as a people were not free. They were dominated by the Romans. They had some freedom given to them by the Romans, but they lived underneath the Roman government. So their tax was a regular reminder that they were not in charge. Not to mention... The Romans worshipped all kinds of gods, uh, including the emperor himself. Rome, I think, still to this day is one of the, one of the greatest civilizations throughout history. Uh, their architecture is amazing. Uh, it still stands. Some of it still stands today. Uh, but if you were a Jew at the time, 
To know that your money was going to building these amazing roads, funding military that would go and conquer more land, or the building of temples in which worship to other gods was being offered, under a ruler who called himself uh, emperor and a god himself, you can see why it might have even felt sacrilegious for a Jew. Just imagine being forced to pay taxes to a government that, uh, say for example, still rallied for or still supported some form of slavery. Right? I think people would be conflicted about that. Uh, Christians would be today, that is. Well, the tax that's uh, likely referred, there was a specific tax that was instituted in AD 6 that required a particular silver coin called a denarius that's mentioned in our text today. And it would have been worth about a, a day's labor. So a day's worth of work is what you had to pay. Well, how is this a trap? Well, if Jesus were to answer yes to the question, then the people might have been angry with him. Yes, pay taxes to Caesar. Uh, they might have been angry and stopped following him, uh, risen up against him perhaps. The people, as we've noted in the past, they don't exactly have a right idea about uh, Jesus and what it means that he's the Messiah. They recognize his authority when he teaches inherently, they know he lays claim to the throne of David, but they think that that means literally conquering the Romans so that he can take the physical throne and reestablish the Jewish people as their own sovereign nation. And just imagine uh, someone who was trying to stage a coup, a coup or overthrow a government telling his band of followers, I actually just continue supporting the government that we're about to overthrow. That wouldn't really make a lot of sense, would it? Well, that's likely why the Pharisees brought with them these figures called the Herodians. Uh, these two groups were not friends. I used air quotes earlier. Uh, they are not friends at all. In fact, uh, you can consider them enemies. They appear to have arranged some kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend agreement here as they uh, partner up against Jesus. We saw the Herodians mentioned one other time in the Gospel of Mark, by the way. Uh, and it's the first time that we hear of people trying to seek to destroy Jesus. Well, these individuals were basically Jewish officials that were politically aligned with Herod. Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. And Herod was basically a governor of Rome. He liked to think of himself as a king, but he was basically a governor of, of a certain area of Rome. But the Herodians would have been viewed as, uh, uh, by the religious Jews as sellouts basically. Sellouts to the secular authorities, backstabbers, even traitors of their people. And because of their political affiliation, uh, they're exactly the kind of people that you don't want to admit that you don't pay taxes in front of. Uh, it would be seen as treason against the emperor. So the Pharisees, by asking this question in front of the Herodians, are basically trying to get Jesus in trouble, either with the people or in trouble with the state. It's what some would consider a lose-lose situation. But as we've seen in the past, Jesus very tactfully and quickly turns the tables on his opposers. And before we go to, into Jesus' actual response, I just want to point out the attitude of the Pharisees coming to Jesus in this situation. Surprise, surprise, the Pharisees don't really care whether or not uh, Jesus thinks you should pay taxes or not. Uh, and we know that from the first verse, Mark tells us that the very reason they came was to trap him in his talk. And it's interesting that word trap 
it's the same word that we could translate as tempt or test. So it's the same word that was uh, used previously when the Pharisees have come to test Jesus. It's also the same word that's used to describe what Satan does in the wilderness when he meets Jesus, to tempt him. They come to him with the intention of getting him to say something that would get him in trouble. And you can tell by the way they begin their inquiry. Verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's just dripping with insincere flattery. Uh, there's nothing about the Pharisees that would lead us to believe that they are in the least bit sincere. They're trying to puff him up. They're setting a trap. They continue to be full of hypocrisy in the way that they challenge Jesus in front of others. Now, I know that calling the Pharisees hypocrites is kind of like saying grass is green, right? They're almost always painted in a negative light in the Bible. Uh, but... Let me just point out a few ironic things about this interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. First, they say, we know that you are true, which is ironic because they had also just recently challenged Jesus about where he gets his authority. In chapter 11, verse 28, he says, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Basically, they're saying, who give, what gives you the right, Jesus? Who do you think you are? How dare you claim to have the authority of heaven? These are the things that they are saying to Jesus just a day earlier. Jesus asked them about John when they questioned him about his authority. And what do they end up saying? We do not know. They can't even bring themselves to give a definite answer. And now they're saying to him, we do know that you are truly of God. It's a lie straight through their teeth. Oh, another ironic thing about this interaction is that they praise him as one who does not care about anyone's opinion. Just look at one verse prior to our text, verse 12 of chapter 12. It's the last verse of the previous section. Look at the reason why they were afraid to arrest Jesus at that time. They feared the people. The last bit of irony in this little interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees is that everything they say about Jesus is actually true. He is true. He is God's, God the Son incarnate. And he speaks the very word of God. He doesn't care about man's opinion of him. He's demonstrated time and time again as he's gone against the Pharisees. He's not swayed by appearances. He dines with sinners and tax collectors. He touches lepers. He doesn't give a pass to the rich young ruler. He doesn't sugarcoat the way to heaven. And yes, he does, in fact, teach the very way of God. He explains the meaning of the scriptures, and he even assumes authority over them. He calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. They're absolutely right in everything they say about Jesus, but they're completely wrong because everything they say is spoken with a deceitful tongue. They don't believe a word of it themselves. Well, that's the question. Now let's look at the answer. The answer to the question, is it lawful to pay taxes? And to answer, or to demonstrate his answer, he asks someone to bring him a coin. So they bring him a denarius. These were, uh, like I said, small silver coins. 
You can go home if you're curious about what they look like. You can just Google them. Uh, we still have many of them today. So you can look exactly at the same coin that Jesus is referring to in this passage. You can see the image stamped on it and the inscription of the inscriptions in Latin. But if you were to translate those words, the inscription says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Remember I said that the Romans believed the emperor to be divine himself. If you flip the coin on the other side, you'll find another inscription, and that Latin inscription says high priest. So you can see why Jews might have had a, a small disagreement or two with the Roman authorities over this issue. But Jesus simply says, whose likeness is on the coin? And the answer is Caesar's. And so he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, implying that because Caesar's likeness is on the coin, therefore it's under his jurisdiction, he's the one who minted it, he has claim to it. Therefore give to him what is his. But Jesus doesn't really seem to feel strongly about it, but that's not all he says. If he stopped right there, there might have been an uproar between one of the two parties opposing him. But the other half of his answer is, render to God the things that are God's. So friends, let's just pause for a minute and think about Jesus' illustration here to prove his point. What can we think of in creation that has the likeness or the image of God inscribed on it? The answer is mankind, humanity. All of creation really reveals God to us. As Paul says in Romans 1, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. But the crown of creation is man and woman who He made in His own image. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him, male and female He created them. We were made in the likeness of God to reflect His moral character and authority over creation. So Jesus is saying, go ahead and give your money to Caesar. He minted it, it's his. But give to God what is God's. Meaning this passage is not merely about paying taxes. The implication is to be a law-abiding citizen. That much is true. But even more than that is the recognition that God is our maker. And therefore we should give to him our lives and our worship. The first commandment is a perfect summary of our obligation to our maker. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as Jesus adds, the second is like it, to love your neighbors as yourself. But Jesus is not just answering the question in a sneaky way that checkmates the Pharisees. He does do that. But he's also putting them in their place at the same time. He's telling the Pharisees uh, to obey the government that they are under the authority of. And he's telling the Herodians to give their lives to God. In chapter 7, Jesus said the prophet Isaiah did well to call the Pharisees hypocrites. When he said, "This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Because they went through all the motions, but their hearts did not worship God. They weren't giving to God what is God's. In their hypocrisy, they came to Jesus, and he tells them to give their money to Caesar, but to give their lives to God. Give your allegiance to God. Give your worship 
to God. Because just as Caesar's likeness marks a denarius, so you and I were made in the image of God, our Creator. The Pharisees, and really anyone, should not be so concerned with things like paying taxes. Mankind should be very concerned, on the other hand, with giving God what is due to Him. And what's the response of the people? They marvel. But those listening to Jesus, as we've seen in the past, perhaps even the Pharisees themselves and the Herodians, marvel at his wisdom. On the surface, that's just a statement about paying taxes, but it's much more than that. The word here for marvel is actually an exalted form of this word. So a better translation would be something like, they were utterly amazed or astounded. And this is the only place in the New Testament that this word appears. This is the effect that Jesus has on his opponents. But what Jesus says here is not only witty, it is profound. And I do think there are a number of things that we can take from it by implication and apply to our own lives about how we relate to living under the regulation of a government. So let me just briefly mention four. Four takeaways or four observations from this passage. First, notice that establishing an earthly kingdom just simply wasn't part of Jesus' agenda. Establishing an earthly kingdom just simply wasn't part of Jesus' agenda. It wasn't in his day, and it isn't for his followers today. This is the reason Jesus doesn't care what happens to the money that is taxed. It's the reason he doesn't need to take a strong stance for or against it. Rome and Caesar are just one small part of God's plan. A friend of mine preached on this passage. Uh, he's a very clever person. And he titled, he made the title of his sermon, Caesar on the Side. As a, a little restaurant pun for you. But it's a great title. Because while we can learn from Jesus' instruction, and we should, uh, pay taxes and obey the government. Really, the emphasis is not on paying taxes or not on uh, giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, but it is our devotion to God. That should be holistic and all-encompassing. Rome's just another political power, like the thousands that have come and gone throughout history. They are part of the nations that rage in Psalm 2 against the Lord. And he will eventually dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. But friends, Jesus came to do something far more important than set up a new political authority, than to set up a, a new kind of civil government. Jesus was not concerned with the retaking of an individual piece of land and giving it back to the Jews. He was concerned with saving sinners. He came to save sinners. Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to God. The only man who never sinned and obeyed the law perfectly. And because he was without sin, he could be the only one who would actually fulfill an appropriate or proper substitute as a sacrifice for the punishment that we all deserve. He went to the cross as a sacrifice in our place so that those who believe in him and turn away from their sins can have peace with God. Those who turn from their sin and call upon Him can have everlasting life, entrance into the kingdom of God forever. 
a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Friends, I hope you see how much more glorious Christ's mission is than by simply overthrowing a single nation to save a single people. Instead, he calls all people from all nations to repent of their sin and to follow him. Friends, if you're here today and you have never turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ, let me just encourage you and plead with you to do that today. There can be nothing more important than receiving the promise that Christ has given for eternal life in him. Jesus now sits on the throne, having been raised from the grave three days later, and nothing will replace his rule. Jesus did, in fact, uh, establish one governing body when he came, but it's not a civil or political one. The governing body he set up was his own body, the church, which he is the head of. And it is to the church that proclaims the gospel that Jesus gave the kingdom or the keys of the kingdom to. Remember in Matthew 16, he says, after Peter makes his confession, he says, uh, here are the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And what that means is that the local church has the authority to tell the world who is a member of the kingdom and who is not. It has the ability and the authority to say this person's profession of faith is valid. And we do that when we baptize uh, members, when we bring them into membership, when we stand and recite our church covenant together before we take the Lord's Supper. These are community identifiers. They're a way to show the world who is a part of the flock of God. And very practically for ourselves, it's a way for us to obey Jesus' commands. Uh, for us elders, it's a way that we know who we are to care for, who we are to watch over and protect and to pray for, uh, for members. Uh, it is uh, the way that we identify what your obligation is to each other. All of these things are different forms of exercising the keys of the kingdom. They have eternal realities in each individual local church. So small as we are, we communicate immeasurable realities of the universe to the rest of the world. Brothers and sisters, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? This is the government that Christ set up. And what did he say? The last thing he said to his followers before he left, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is the authority he gives to his church. Certainly he could have taken over a physical piece of land and established himself as a king. But no, his mission was much more specific and far more important, to rescue sinners. Brothers and sisters, just a, a quick point of application. Be extremely skeptical when you encounter any kind of religious nationalism, uh, veiled in politics or whatever it may be. Just be skeptical of it. Christ's mission was not uh, to make a Christian nation full of uh, non-Christians who are ruling it or inside of it. The nation that Christ created has only saved people in its community. Only the regenerate are a part of the kingdom of God or a part of the temple, the body, the church. These are the illustrations that Christ uses. So be skeptical of any kind of religious nationalism you come across. That's the first observation. Second observation. Civil government 
has a legitimate authority given to it by God. Jesus acknowledges this. When he says, give to Caesar, what is Caesar's? It's even more clear in Romans 13, which we read earlier in the service. There is no authority except from God, it says. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. It's interesting, in Romans, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. So is Mark when he's recording this gospel. Jesus is instructing them to submit to the same government. Which means there's a category in which part of our obedience to God means obedience to the government's authority over us. Even if we don't agree with their policies, or even if uh, they act in sinful ways. Even if we think the government is immoral and wicked, Jesus does not equate paying taxes with worshiping the government. Jesus does not equate paying taxes to worshiping the government, or even endorsing a particular government. He sees it as part of their jurisdiction of a secular government and part of being an honorable citizen. Now, we need to recognize that obeying civil authorities is uh, an area that we will be judged by at the end of time. It's, it's a metric. And this is becoming, I think, harder and harder to do, it seems, uh, not just as Christians, but as our culture seems to be gradually devaluing all authority and identifying any kind of authority as restrictive or oppressive especially in uh, the age of social media, uh, right? It used to be that the, the, the rules of a polite society were to never mention religion and never mention politics. But now we live in social media where it seems almost expected that you always uh, blast those things out to the rest of the world, even to strangers you don't know. But the Bible speaks about authority as a good thing that blesses and protects those under it when it is used appropriately. Now, there may be some who claim that life would be better if there was just no government at all or no structure in society. I've never met anyone like this. Uh, perhaps you have. But I seriously doubt it. No one wants complete chaos or complete disorder. But our obedience is part, uh, our obedience to the government is part of our obedience to God. Listen to what 1 Peter 2.13 says. Be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We are to honor officials in government positions. It's something, again, that I just see not very common, sadly, even among Christians. The freeness of which people speak against authority, even once they disagree with. But, friends, we can honor political officials that we disagree with. You don't have to agree with them. But as Christians, we do have to honor them. Some governments see Christians as a threat. But they shouldn't, because Christians are to be peaceful, law-abiding citizens. Uh, there is a, an apologist, he's one of the earliest that we know of in history, who wrote a letter in A.D. 130. And he wrote a letter to his friend.
friend. This is the epistle of Diognetus. And he has basically a long letter that is arguing for why you want Christians in your country. Why having Christian citizens is actually a good thing that benefits the society as a whole. Remember 8130, uh, the culture is still very much oppressive and threatened by Christians. Persecution is high. Uh, Christianity is not uh, the, the main religion of the land yet at that time. But he writes this, and I think it's just a wonderful summary of how we are to uh, live in the world, be in the world, but not of it. He says this, For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech, nor lead, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves as advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in our own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. They marry as all do, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack in all things, yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, and they bless. They are insulted, and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. This is one of the reasons we pray for other nations every week in pastoral prayer, and specifically for other Christians in other nations, because we have more in common with our brothers and sisters in a totally different culture and nation, probably under a different kind of government as well than us, than we do with our unbelieving neighbors and friends, or our unbelieving family members. We are the in the world and not of it. There is no earthly ruler or political party that can deliver on all their promises. This is observation number three. There's no earthly ruler or political party that can deliver on all their promises. So far I've mainly uh, talked about finding it hard to submit to governments. But there are some of us who probably need to be reminded. Usually that reminder comes every four years during an election season. 
not to put our hopes in any particular political party or candidate or policy. I'm not saying you can't have an opinion. I'm not saying that all policies or parties are equal or all kinds of governments are. But I, I am saying that we can easily fall into the trap of believing that you know, if only the Supreme Court was made up of these individuals, or if only this candidate stays out of office, everything will be okay. And it's a little bit of sneaky utopianism that sneaks into our lives and our beliefs when that happens. But friends, utopia of any kind will never happen on this earth. Political campaigns, they always overpromise and underdeliver. We need to remember that anyone ruling during our lifetime is just a finite and fallen creature. And that Jesus is the only one who can truly deliver on his promises. We do look forward to a utopian society, but it doesn't come on this earth. It comes in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and God what is God's, he's giving an example of what trust in a higher authority looks like. It's because we believe that God does rule over all nations. We as Christians don't need to be anxious when things don't go the way we want. Uh, when the government's not set up the way we want, we don't need to be anxious if uh, our current government totally collapses. If the free market goes away and capitalism just completely ends. Christians have been faithful, who have lived under every different kind of government, whether that be authoritarian dictatorships or monarchies or the like. In the most oppressive governments, Christians are able to hope in God and so honor the emperor in doing so. We live in a, a very fortunate time and place. But if things were to change, we are still called to be faithful. And we are still called to, insofar as it doesn't compromise our faith or our worship of God, submit to and obey the government. Observation four. Ultimately, our inheritance is in heaven. So we should hold the things of this world loosely. Our inheritance is in heaven. So we should hold the things of this world loosely. This is why Christians should not be threatened or concerned with something like taxes. Uh, the wording Jesus uses here is the things of Caesar. And the things of God bring to mind that time that Jesus rebuked Peter. Uh, remember Jesus made his first prediction in chapter 8 verse 31. That he would be handed over, killed, uh, rise three days later. And Peter takes him aside and begins rebuking him saying, far be it from you, and what does Jesus do? He says, get behind me, Satan. And he tells Peter, you are setting your mind on the things of man, and not the things of God. The nations will rage. Let them rage. What is most precious to us can never be taken away. This doesn't mean that we do nothing, work for good when we can, vote your conscience by all means, and I would say, most of all, be active in prayer. When your mind is fixed on the things of God, you should be moved to pray for the things that are ordinarily too big for us to have any impact on. This is another reason why we try to model praying for authority figures and government uh, figures in the pastoral prayer. And we do that because we are confident that God rules 
over these figures and will hold them accountable one day. He can and has used governments and steered them to accomplish his purposes. It's also just a very practical way that we can love and honor our authorities by praying for them. So is it lawful to pay taxes? Yes. It is lawful. Whether Caesar or the United States, civil obedience is part of our obedience to God. But it should only be one small example of the way that we are in the world and not of it. We live as sojourners and strangers, as Diomedes stated, adhering to the laws of the land, but longing for our true home in heaven. Our willingness to pay taxes reflects our desire to live peaceably, to trust God, to hold every government on the planet accountable, and to use your obedience to earthly authorities as a reminder that whatever freedom or whatever treasure or whatever luxuries or sufferings that are acquired in this life, they are not ultimate. Therefore, give your money to Caesar, but give your heart and your life to God. Worship him with your whole self. Give your obedience to the state, but give your soul and your worship to God. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we praise you because you do hold all authority in your hand. Kingdoms and nations rage against you. They come and they go, but your kingdom is forever. Lord, help us to seek to obey the government when we can. Help us to honor you in doing so. Lord, we praise you for sending your son, Jesus, who has all authority on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. And yet he came with the far greater vision of what redemption looks like. He came to rescue sinners from all peoples and all tribes and all nations. Lord, we pray that we would honor you with our lives, that we would give our whole selves in worship to you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.